This is Vaya con Muñoz with Natalia Muñoz. WHMP. Welcome, everybody. This week is especially nice for me because Larry Hart, the filmmaker, a good friend, so talented, so funny. This is why you're on my program, Larry, because you're funny. So start with the funny now. First topic is James Kahn has died. (laughs) (laughs) Making me laugh right there. (laughs) He deserved to die in the Godfather movies and he's dead now. Oh, he was only 82 and I'm getting close, so I feel for him. Well, he was great in the first Godfather. Yes. And he was great in, um, did you see Brian? It should, teach, it should teach you not to go through the toll booths. You should go around the toll booths. You know, that, that, that left the lasting impression on me. But now we don't have toll booths. Now we no. have Easy Pass. As a result, as a result of that movie, by the way, people don't, people have not been using. What, the... what was the effect of The Godfather on national culture? <laughs> and trans- public transportation systems, it, it, it had a, t- a chilling effect. Unint- unintended consequences. Just okay, like, wanted, just like, I, I, uh, just like Jaws made people yes. scared. Yes, it got, water. it got People got rid of their teeth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me, you wanted to say. No, I don't want to say anything. I don't oh, okay, to, good. To, all right. So let's go to. So let's go to. Okay. First of all, seriously, James Khan. I do want to talk about James Khan just a little bit. He was a great actor. He, he seemed was. to. Um, he was one of those actors that literally embodies the character that he's playing. And even though Brian's song, which was about a football player who was um, a, had a fatal disease, I don't remember which one. Yeah. And a. It was a sappy, it was a sappy movie. I don't know if you remember it, Larry. It played on TV. It was like the... Right, he had uh, terminal tooth decay, I think, and it was really serious. (laughs) What? Actually, I have to tell you, I saw it so long ago, I don't remember. Oh, okay, because it was so, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm saying even in that kind of sappy, awful movie, he was very... All right. Yeah, he was sincere. But actually, let's like, why don't we go on to a topic I actually know something about? Okay, what do you want to talk about? Well, I'll tell you right now, I am I've unretired for the third time. Yes. And I'm producing a new a new film. Yes. And um, once again, it's a uh, a film uh, about a subject that I am. Well, let's say it's about a people or a segment of society that I'm not a part of. Uh, and this is a, a, a frequent issue. Yeah. You know what, Larry? Um, I think that you're one of you're like an anthropological. I'm missing the word. An anthropological filmmaker. Well, I thought you were going to say anthropologist as a combination of anthro and apologist. <laughs> no, no, you're like you're like an anthropologist, and you 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 mix that with being a filmmaker, in uncovering stories. Well, let's put it this way: my interest in filmmaking didn't come from filmmaking per se. I got interested in filmmaking as a political means of getting across a message. I was an attorney and I was also making films at the same time. And I was able to weigh pretty easily two things. What I liked doing the most day to day and what I thought it was the most effective way to get out a political message. I was actually kind of naive at the beginning when I went into film because I thought, ah, film would be much faster than a legal case. (laughs) Uh, Legal cases can make change. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Roe v. Wade, for example, yeah, right. change doesn't last forever, it lasted 50 years, okay, good mm-hmm. enough. Um, 
but it takes hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and all this time to go through the court system. And I thought, ah, film would be much faster. Than that. <laughs> Little did I know my average films were, took five years and many, many of them took eight years. Yeah. Right. And yeah. of course, that's an average because one or two took one year. Before um, we, before I ask you about that specifically, what area of law did you practice in? Well, it was euphemistically known as poverty law, which is poverty both for the clients and the lawyer. <laughs> I was a, I was a legal services lawyer, and I started out as a Vista lawyer. Uh, and the best thing about that is you got uh, dental, medical, and food stamps. <laughs> so imagine going into court in your suit and tie, and then going to the grocery store with your food stamps. Yes. <laughs> It yeah. just didn't look right. Oh, wow. Este, Larry, like, why like, does it but, take so long to make a film? And, like, and really, when you say five to eight years, that's not an exaggeration. For people no. who don't know about the process of filmmaking, why does it take that long on average? Well, this is the process of filmmaking in the United States. For, if you were in Canada or Great Britain, for example, yeah, it might take you that long on a personal film, but if you're working say with the BBC or the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, and they have money and they commission a film, a film can be made fairly quickly from three months to a year or two years, depending on how complicated the subject matter is. So part of it is the fundraising and part of it is the research. So I'll give you an example. Um, I started work doing half hour films, which took me two or three years each to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how it might sound incredible to some people. You can spend that much time in a half hour film. But I was learning the process of learning how to raise money. And early on, I thought, well, all this time I'm putting into a half hour film, it takes just as much energy to write a proposal for millions of dollars. And it, you form the words a million with your mouth the same way you say 100,000. So why don't you ask for a million rather than 100,000? Mm -hmm. So I came up, uh, the first idea I came up with, actually my, my, my wife and I came, sort of came up with this together, was to do a film on what's called the wilderness idea. Where does the idea for preserving wilderness Your wife, come? Diane, yeah, okay. My late wife, Diane. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, she was working on a film about Niagara Falls. Now when Niagara Falls comes to mind, you probably instantly go to uh, tourist attraction, honeymoons, you know. Oh, yeah, give me some credit for being a little bit deeper, not being so shallow, Larry. Well, okay, so what else do you think of when you think of Niagara Falls? I think of water. I think I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, I'm glad we went right to the lowest denominator <laughs> there. Um, but Niagara Falls for many, many centuries mm -hmm. was a symbol of wilderness in the new world. And it was also a symbol of what was known as the sublime in the simplest form that's God in nature. Uh, and the idea, for example, if you saw an old a painting from the 19th century and it had a blasted tree in the corner of a beautiful scene, that blasted tree is reminding you of, you know, not only God, in, but of the wrath of God in nature, that things that the sublime in, includes things that are also powerful and, and dangerous, but they all come from God. I'm, I'm, I'm reducing this, but as we began to research this film, and we were we were inspired by my my erstwhile partner Ken Burns, whose uh, first film was big big film was on the Brooklyn Bridge, mm -hmm. and he then did the Statue of Liberty, and we were thinking, okay, icons. What are the other icons in American life? Mm -hmm. And we came up with Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. And while we were researching Niagara Falls, we came across a book called Wilderness in the American Mind. Mm -hmm. which had 13 chapters in it, which happens to be the number of uh, 
weeks in a TV season. <laughs> and we were thinking, oh, how about a 13-week series? Mm-hmm. And now we were thinking big. We were in our early 30s. We were, both of us came from other careers. We didn't start filmmaking in our 20s. Mm-hmm. And we thought, okay, what can we do that's 13 weeks? It's enormous. And we thought we can do all the wilderness idea in America. Where does it come from? Where does conservation come from? Where do the transcendentalists fit in? Who are the icons of, of wilderness thought? Where do the national parks come from? All of it. It's enormous. Mm-hmm. But as we started researching, we also found that some of it wasn't very exciting, um, that it would be very hard to uh, fund some of this. And we finally got it down to four parts. And you asked me about why does it take so long? Well, think about the research just, just went into doing that, that I explained to you, starting to read the book, starting to talk to the people. Then we start writing the proposals. And I won't, I won't turn this into the eight years that it took. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Maybe less than eight minutes. Yes. Uh, But I eventually got uh, uh, money from seven different state humanities councils around the country. Humanities councils, like we have one in Massachusetts, Mass Humanities, uh, Connecticut Council for the Humanities, Wyoming Council for the Humanities, goes on and on and on. Um, They do funding on the state level, similar to what the National Endowment for the humanities does on the national level. And frequently those state councils are a stepping stone to bigger money. Mm-hmm. So eventually I got WGBH involved. They became our presenting station. Uh, they tried to raise money for us, but we didn't really get the big money. Mm-hmm. Uh, long and short of it is I raised most of the money on my own until we started actually cutting the film without a full budget. And the American experience, which I actually helped get started at, at uh, the iron years, I, I, GBH hired me as a, as a consultant to help get the American experience started. And then they wouldn't fund my film. <laughs> Wait a second, yeah. what's, wrong, yeah. what's wrong with this picture? Uh, yeah. But eventually they asked me if they could see the rough cut of the film, or the first film. And they liked it and they fully funded it. And then they funded the second film. Uh, and by then, we realized that the third and fourth films weren't particularly interesting to us or anybody else, and we dropped them. So we went from 13 films to four films to two films. Two films. But right. those two films got national broadcasts on a major series. And in fact, one of them was nominated for an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. Um, and that took eight years. And also the funding, it, it's just, people, I bet you did a lot of work pro bono where you weren't getting paid, but you still have to go places and film, well, you still have to do the research. You still have to right. spend One hours of things that I'll tell you the, the good part and the bad part in, a, in an example. Mm-hmm. Early on in the process, at one point, we received a $25,000 grant to explore all the national parks and wilderness locations, wilderness areas that were mentioned in the proposal, mm-hmm. $25,000 outright just to drive around and go to them and talk mm-hmm. to people and get the visual straight. Now, that is a high point in a filmmaker's career. Get that much money to tour the United States, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the low point is, after we do all that, it takes another four years to get the rest of the money mm. because we were not able to get the big grants we, we needed and we had to p- compile smaller grants together. So if you, you asked me about you know, the hourly rate or the, <laughs> if you were to divide the, the money by the number of hours it takes generally to make your own self-initiated film, mm-hmm. I mean, you're getting paid pennies an hour, really. So we're not doing this type of thing to get rich. We of course need to survive. In fact, at the beginning, both my wife and I were working other jobs. She was both a nurse and a fundraiser for UMass. 
Um, I was teaching business law at, at UMass to plant and soil science majors. Mm -hmm. It was called turf law for <laughs> people who were gonna who were, cool. who were taking care of golf courses and and corporate wow. campuses. Somebody uh, had to do it. Worthwhile work. Right. We're um, speaking with the filmmaker, the award-winning filmmaker Larry Hot Lawrence Hot. We're gonna take a break and we'll be right back talking some more with Mr. Hot. This is Vaya con Muñoz with Natalia Muñoz, WHMP. And he's back. And he's back. Back and he's back in his chair. All right. Um, here we go. We're back with Larry Hot, the filmmaker. Um, you're working on a new project. Uh, it's not going to take you five to eight years, is it? Tell us about this new film that you're doing. Well, your question about how long it's going to take is quite relevant because when I retired at the request of my wife, uh, I, I said, I really don't want to retire. And she said, I'll tell you what, you can retire from fundraising. And if a film walks in the door fully funded, fully funded, you can take it. I said, fair enough. Mm -hmm. And then, to her great surprise, <laughs> BBS called and asked if I would do a film called The Warrior Tradition, uh, Native Americans in the military, and why they fight for a country that tried to annihilate them. And I did that film, and it turned out to be the 2019 Veterans Day special for BBS. And then when I was over, uh, my wife, Diane Gary, said, okay, I'm raising the stakes here, uh, $2 million. A film has to come in with a minimum $2 million budget. Mm -hmm. uh, and she said, that's unlikely to happen, so I think now you're retired. <laughs> so <laughs> I would dove into all kinds of other volunteer work. And uh, then my, sadly, my wife passed away and I thought, okay, that voids the contract. I don't have to worry about that voids the contract, <laughs> the, the $2 million <laughs> level. But I, I think she was right to say, you know, don't start a project that you can't finish. Don't fundraise anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, you know, it was 70 plus the year. I think I was 71 at the time. I got a call from PBS mm -hmm. that said, hey, are you still interested in doing films? And I really surprised myself because I said yes before I knew what the subject was. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I said, okay, something inside me wants to keep working. Mm -hmm. I said, well, okay, what's the subject? And they said, this is the, the Buffalo PBS station who was calling and they said, the subject is the Niagara movement. Mm -hmm. and I thought, oh God, I've heard of that. And I was trying to cover up. I said, oh yeah, yeah, I remember the Niagara movement. <laughs> Now, you should understand that I've done two full films on Niagara Falls and its history. Yeah. And I swore that not only would I never do another Niagara Falls again, film again, I would never go back to Niagara Falls. <laughs> <laughs> I just had enough. And then it keeps coming up in my films. I did a film on Frederick Law Olmsted, who helped design the park at Niagara Falls. So I had to go back there again. Then yeah. I did a film on the War of 1812. Oh, Niagara Falls battles. follows you, Larry. Niagara Everywhere. Falls follows you. You're right. Yeah. Niagara Falls, slowly I turn. Yes. And there it is, yeah. <laughs> staring me in the face. I said, okay, what's the subject? And the subject turns out to be the Niagara movement was a civil rights movement of the early 19th century, and it involved a great debate between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington with a guy named William Monroe Trotter thrown in, and it's the precursor to the, double, the NAACP, and it's a great story. It's a great American story, and it is more relevant than ever. It'll never go away, probably. No. Uh, 
unfortunately. So where is this? Where are you in this? Well, I did all the filming already, and this is um, a bit this of an unusual... challenge. I remember you telling me the particular challenge of this film because you don't have I... records and photos. Well, yeah, let me so you know, say something. The word film to somebody usually means visual. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> There's something to look at. And a film that's just talking heads, uh, you know, it's pretty much a, a recipe or what they call a cure for insomnia. That's a better way to put it. Right. <laughs> um, and I was worried because the time period is 1895 to 1910 or so. 1895 is when Booker T. Washington gave a famous speech that's been dubbed the Atlanta Compromise, where he basically said, let's accommodate the white people. Let's not get up in their faces. Let's not make noise. Let's let's train our people in the vocations and the trades, um, and that seemed to be fine. Everyone wanted to hear it, and even some of the other civil rights leaders said, "Okay, you know, we don't want to make waves." But then Jim Crow, which had already existed, and lynching, which already existed, of course, got much much worse. And then W. E. B. Du Bois at first supported this position, but then he and the other African American leaders started seeing the number of lynchings increase, the depredations, the discrimination increase, the riots were increasing, and African-Americans were going backwards. And the accommodationist policies of Booker T. Washington were not working. And this sets the stage for the founding of the Niagara Movement. So here I am, I'm not, I'm not an African-American, I'm not a civil rights leader, but I am a filmmaker. Right? Mm -hmm. But I know that this film really needs the input of people who live and breathe this material. Mm -hmm. So I have a great diverse team of advisors, men and women who've been studying this, the, the boys, biographers like David Levering Lewis, who won the Pulitzer Prize, Alden Morris, a great African-American scholar, Chad Williams at, at Brandeis, um, other people who really know what they're talking about, Angela Jones, who's a woman who's written a book on the Niagara Movement and feminism and the Niagara Movement. And the reason I put that, I don't wanna put it in parentheses, but the reason I bring it up is that W.E. Du Bois and Monroe Trotter, when they founded the Niagara Movement with other men, did not invite any women. Why is that? Why what is that? What a shock. shock. What a shock. And of course, there was blowback. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a, that's a good, that's part of the, part of the film. Um, but I have a good, I had a good uh, diverse film crew for shooting and I have great advisors and great uh, interviewees. Uh, and we are how long is this hard. how long is this taking you uh well about as long as this interview uh <laughs> oh you might you mean the length of the film i meant yeah, it's yes. going to be an hour um okay well that's what relative to what we were talking about before about how long it takes to make a film uh i was approached in october mm -hmm. and asked to start the clock running on january 1st october, october 20, of last year, 2022 okay, 2021 and uh no october I, 2021 I'm sorry, October 2021. Yes, yeah. October 2021. Yeah. And I did enough research to know what I was doing uh, and agreed to the contract, which we signed on January 2nd. So we basically started at the beginning of this year. Mm -hmm. And my commitment is to finish it by the end of the year. And I really hope I will. Larry, I, Larry, I want, how did you... about, I want to talk to you about why that's going to be hard. I know, I know you, I know you want to talk about other things, but before you get there, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. How did you assemble this team? Like, what was what was your criteria to get people on board with you to help you uh, produce this film? You know, even if even with the internet, the old ways are the best ways, which is to call people who have written books on the subject and find out whom they would talk to, 
and whom they respect and what books they read and what they liked. Uh, the internet maybe helps you find those books a little faster than the, than the index cards in the library did, but it's the same process. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily, amazingly on this film, I found out that one of the experts who's not an African-American, but one who wrote one of the early biographies in 1970 mm -hmm. on the subject mm -hmm. is a man named Stephen Fox, mm -hmm. who was in four of my other films. Uh, I became very close with him in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, and it turns out that he was the inspiration for an African-American woman named Carrie Greenwich, who wrote uh, another biography of William Monroe Trotter. Who, she read his book when she was a little girl. And that's why she be, decided to become an historian. So it's a wonderful connection there. Mm -hmm. So basically, how do you find the people? Yeah. You read a lot of books. You look who wrote them. You call them up. And luckily, if they're alive, <laughs> they will talk to you and agree to be on film. And then, then finding the modern younger scholars, mm -hmm. that's great because they, you know, they're revisionists. They want to look deeply at it and say, okay, what did they miss the first time? Well, what that's we a really good point you're bringing up. Uh, people then revise history and, and at times... With, with facts, with more facts, more details, more true details. But did you find that sometimes there were uh, colliding views or- well, There's some, like, there's some the minor points that are different. Um, although they seem to influence people a lot. Like the Niagara movement uh, met in Buffalo, but they rented a hotel in Fort Erie across the river in Canada. And some people thought that was because they, uh, the racism in Buffalo wouldn't let them meet in Buffalo in the hotel. But recent scholarship seems to show that uh, there was another convention going in, on in town and they were booked. <laughs> so there wasn't like a very deep political so issue going on the there. Probably yeah. not, but then, again, but then again, they went to Fort Erie, which is in Canada, because Canada was not the United States. And Canada was the destination for the Underground Railroad, right? So it had certain symbolism. But they also, why did they go to Buffalo, right? People said they went to Buffalo because it's near Niagara Falls and Niagara Falls was a symbol of power. Right. But some of the records seems to show that they went to Buffalo because the rates to get there were cheaper than any other city in the United States. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> I find those things pretty humorous and a, good, yeah. and, a fun thing, and a fun thing to put into the film. I hope they make it. Es Vaya con Muñoz with Natalia Muñoz. WHMP. We're back with Larry Hart, the filmmaker, the award-winning filmmaker, and I think you know something about wine as well. Is this true? W h i n e. Yes. If you're a filmmaker, <laughs> you complain all the time. I know a lot about that. Okay, I'm proud of myself for setting you up perfectly with that. Thank you. Um, Larry, before we we couldn't remember what you were going to say before, but the, that's okay. Um. Your filmmaking career it goes over several decades. Yeah. I remember when every single documentary it seemed was made by a white man. And that is no longer the case, though still we don't see a rich diversity of filmmakers. We see some, but I don't think enough that you can say, hey, oh my God, there's so many, I don't even know their names. Well, uh, you know, the real simple answer for that is privilege. And what I mean by that is in order to have the time to develop a project and see it through to the end means that you have to have some backup, some safety net 
you need, first of all, for the most part, you need to have some kind of education. So you need to write well. Uh, you need to have enough money so that you don't have to work all the time, day and night, just to pay bills, right? Um, so the people who are able to do that are generally not the people who are immigrants or are from families that didn't have enough money to go to college, things like that. And in this, in this country, that turns out to often case be the people who are not white. Right? So that's one of the reasons, but this is changing for a couple of reasons with a caveat. In order to pursue this full-time and do the major projects that get on to television, you still have to have some means, right? work maybe extra jobs and that's really difficult so it's hard to have a family so it really winnows people out but the reason it's still possible is the democratization of the technology now people kind of know this intuitively because they see the iphone and they see that people have been able to edit and they see stuff on TikTok and whatever the latest social media is right it doesn't matter we've always had pencils and pieces of paper, right? Talent will out. It doesn't matter whether you have a $25,000 camera with a $90,000 lens on it, or, a, you know, the lowest iPhone, right? The talent is there, it will out, okay? But then you have to have the time and energy to follow through on it, and the subject matter that is big enough to command attention, right? So those were, beginning at, you know, earlier on, whiter people and mailer people. <laughs> mailer people, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just want to give you an example of how the costs have changed. When I started in film, 16 millimeter film, it cost $400 or so, 440 as I recall, to buy and process the film, to get it in your hands so that you could actually work with it for every 10 minutes. Right? Oh, goodness. Right. So when we shot an interview in the back of my head, I very quickly had a little clock going in the back of my head. I can know when we got to 10 minutes and I know if that person was not getting to the point, I would stop them. I'd stop the camera and I'd say, I have to ask you one important question and you have 30 seconds to answer. It's like live news. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you got somebody who was just never going to get there and you found it was a mistake to interview in the first place, you would turn to the camera person and you would say, you would say friendship. And they knew what friendship meant. I don't know where the term came from, but friendship meant pretend that you're filming because you are not about to waste on, on somebody whose interview was not going to be used because they were so boring, right? <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen wonderful say, yeah. BBC documentaries you know, where, where the interviewer, the interviewee opens his mouth and falls asleep and starts drooling in the middle. I've had those people really happen. To, <laughs> no way. Really happen to me. Right. <laughs> but now there's another expense that happens with video, mm -hmm. which is that you not only have to pay for the transcripts, which you no longer have to have somebody type them up for you. Mm -hmm. There's an incredible system out there where it's, it's, it's a uh, task rabbit type people all around the world. Yeah whether the computer does the transcript and then a human being corrects it. Mm -hmm. So you get a, a word perfect transcript at a $2 a page or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you do 40 pages, right? So, and you're doing tens, you know, 20 interviews, you're up into thousands of dollars already for transcripts. And then you have to read them. 
right? right? And then you have to mark them and work with them. And all that adds up time and money as well. So mm -hmm. what you make up for in having cheap video, you pay again in the time it takes to work with it. But the difference is beforehand, you couldn't even get the image because you had to pay thousands of dollars for that film and the processing. Now, at least you can get it in your hands, even if it still takes a lot of time to work with it. And this is the democratization. Because beforehand, when I use the pencil and the yellow pad analogy, the pencil and the yellow pad before was a very expensive film camera, very expensive film itself. So you couldn't even buy the pencil and the tablet. But now everybody has a camera in their pocket. But isn't it also true that just because everybody, it seems like everybody can now make a film, it doesn't mean they're gonna make a great film or even a good film. And I go back to when that documentary on the uh, Summer of Love, mm -hmm. uh, as you have reviewed before, is it's a concert um, by black artists in New York City. Um, Quest Love. Right, it, right. It, you know, films either rise above or fall below the level of the subject matter, or maybe they hit it right on the head. Well, so that film, was fascinating for the Summer of Love, but I don't think the footage wasn't particularly great, but neither was the editing. It didn't seem to have a point. It just sort of went, you know, from point A to point B. Oh, now it's over. There wasn't really anything about it that made it compelling. What carried, what carried that film was it was competently edited and it was interesting because the subject matter itself was interesting, but it didn't rise above the level of the subject matter. Right. Oh, well, we, I, have a, we have a disagreement on this, Larry, because I thought that the editing was fine, but it wasn't outstanding. But I think I'm telling that, you, no, 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 we're agreeing. We're oh, agreeing. Okay. I'm saying the editing was competent. Mm -hmm. It was at the level of the subject. The subject matter was inherently interesting. An interesting concert happened at an interesting time. There were some interesting performances. Fine. It was a concert film. Mm -hmm. It wasn't more than a concert film, and it could have been more than a concert film. So, right. You know, we have seen really great concert films. Right. We're in agreement on it. Okay. So I can think I can think of a couple of films off the top of my head mm -hmm. where the subject matter was strong, but the way the filmmakers made it, it was beyond a good film. It was a fantastic film. I'll give you two examples. All right. One's called Imposter from 2012 mm -hmm. about a child who goes missing in Texas and reappears in Spain, a 14-year-old child, mm -hmm. reappears in Spain as somebody who appears to be a 21-year-old, but only a year mm -hmm. later, and the family accepts him back. Mm -hmm. Wait, there's seven years difference. Why is the family accepting him back? And the filmmakers do a brilliant film looking at what, who is this imposter and what is the family covering up? That's mm -hmm. a fantastic film. Or a film that came out a few years ago called Three Identical Strangers mm -hmm. about triplets who were separated at birth and used in a weird kind of Mengele experiment in, in New York City among adoption agencies. And it's just the subject matter alone is strong but the way the filmmakers presented it with the beautiful reenactments uh, an intriguing storyline and narrative, it was brilliant, right? So those are films that rise above already strong subject matter. Yes, so that, does that mean that anybody can do that? Absolutely not. Right. In Iran, who was sentenced to uh, house arrest and was not allowed to use his crew or his film equipment 
and made a brilliant feature film using his cell phone and cell phones of his friends who he wasn't able to see, but he was able to, they were able to send him the footage, right? It, and that's his cell phone footage. Mm -hmm. So if you have, if you are a brilliant mind and you have a pencil and a piece of paper, in this case, if you have a, a cell phone and a computer editing, it doesn't matter how good your equipment is, right? right. It's, always, it's always about the narrative. Um, I heard somebody uh, was saying, you know, storytelling is overrated. We don't need storytelling so much anymore. I said, this guy's crazy. Yeah. The only thing we have as humans is storytelling. There is a reason <laughs> the Bible, for whatever you might think about its veracity, is still the best-selling book of all time. The Greek myths, why? Everything is a story. Why is Marvel Comics so popular? It's always a story. So a lot of documentarians forget. They say, I want to do a, sub I want to do a film about a subject. I say, I don't give a damn about your stupid subject. Mm -hmm. I want to know who the characters are. I, know, I want to know what the story is. The hardest films I've ever done are the ones that we call survey films. So I'll give you an example. We okay, were asked wait a to do wait a minute. Wait a minute. Start again. The hardest films I've ever done. The hardest film I've been asked to work on was the bicentennial of Ohio film, the history of Ohio. Okay. Right? Thank you. Now, right on the surface, I knew right from the get-go that this wasn't an easy film, and one of the reasons I knew is that Ted Turner, twenty years before. Mm -hmm. had done a series on every on every state in the union all 50 states mm -hmm. and it was dismal and he had all the money he wanted right so i knew you can't just take the history of a state and make a film out of it you've got to find stories within the stories right and for that film we just we decided we had to have a lot of fun with it we had to make fun of Ohio. We had to make, make fun, fun of, of Ohio. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's a stolid, this stolid citizenry in the middle of the road, the bellwether state that can't decide whether the Democrats or Republicans. Mm -hmm. They grow soybeans. They have the they have the biggest pumpkin festival in the country. You, know? <laughs> you just have to have fun with it. This Dayton, Ohio, with somebody in the in the uh, film says, there's no reason for Dayton to exist. <laughs> Dayton, Dayton has the most basements in the country and therefore the most inventors. Right. I mean, this is the kind of wacky facts that we had to find for this. Well, that's interesting. That makes it fascinating. You're right. right now you want, there's it's a not scene, enough to have the equipment or just have a, a story. It's like, how are you going to tell this story? You know, one of the things they invented in, in, in Ohio was the bulletproof vest, but the archival film is of a guy taking out a pistol and shooting a woman oh, <laughs> point no. blank who's wearing a bulletproof vest oh, and no. you should see her face. Oh <laughs> God. Tell me right? she survived. Tell me she survived. She, she survived and she was giggling. But this is, you know, this is the kind of goofy footage we had that we used. But it's also Ohio was one of the centers of the Underground Railroad and they crossed over the Ohio River from Kentucky. Right. So there's dramatic stories as well. And in fact, it was in Ohio where I first learned how to pronounce the menu item pooled chicken. How I said to the waitress, what is pooled chicken? She said, well, we also have pooled pork. <laughs> okay, now how do you spell it? She says, P-U-L-L-E-D, pooled. <laughs> I said, pooled, pooled chicken. She said, that's what I said, pooled <laughs> Did so you get that on film? Show. Did you get that on film? That exchange? <laughs> no, no. We're speaking with Larry Hot. We're going to take a break and we'll be back for our final segment today with the great filmmaker and person Larry Hot. 
This is Vaya con Muñoz with Natalia Muñoz. WHMP. Okay, here we go for the final segment. I have no idea what you're going to ask me. The whole thing will be And we're back with Larry Hunt. Talking about film, filmmaking. Larry, how many films have you, you directly made that you haven't produced, but you were the director? Oh, I don't know, seven or 8,000. No. Okay. Uh, it feels like that. No, um, actually, I was the producer and director of all of the films I've made. Mm -hmm. I, but I consulted on five or 10 films, or I was even executive producer on one, but I think I've made 35 films. Uh, 25 of those were long form PBS documentaries and the other ones were shorts. Um, and I can tell you that I really enjoy the shorts better. Mm -hmm. um, they are, well, you're not gonna be surprised by this. They're shorter. Larry, before we have just a few minutes left, and I want to ask you about the importance of music, of the soundtrack in, in documentaries and films, specifically documentaries. Sometimes the music, as we know, gets in the way of the story. Yeah. What for you, what, what are you looking for in music when you watch documentaries? Oh, I've seen so I've seen so many films ruined by bad music, mm -hmm. where either they use uh, music that is stock music, mm -hmm. chunky, crappy, cheesy music. Mm -hmm. uh, I know music is very expensive, although now it's been revolutionized. And if you know the right sites to go to, mm -hmm. uh, you can find incredible music that are that has been used in other films that is now available because the the uh, composers retain the rights, mm -hmm. and then you can ne negotiate to use it again. So really now there's no excuse for having had bad music, but a lot of filmmakers don't really pay attention to how much the mood of the music affects the film. And the crucial uh, idea, I guess, uh, or a editing technique is rhythmic editing. Mm -hmm. uh, and do you- What's that? Do you re-edit re to go with the music mm. or do you compose the music to go with the film? If you're lucky and you have enough money, you work with a composer who composed to the co composes to the frame. That's the the, mm -hmm. the word we use. Mm -hmm. You know, in film it was 24 frames a second. Now it's 30 uh, 30 frames a second or 29.97 if you want to get really technical. Yes, um, we really want to get technical. Okay, <laughs> which I don't. Um, <laughs> but, but right now I'm working with a composer named Robert Tateris, um, out of Hollywood, an African American man. Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, has insisted to me, rightfully, I think, that we start now, mm -hmm. months, months before uh, he will even see a, a, a second of film. What is he but, looking for? What is he looking for then? He wants to know the mood, the ideas, the possibilities. So we're already talking about the scenes and the instrumentation and can we use jazz and does it have to be period? And, you know, I say, okay, you know, this takes place in 1895. I want you to take the pledge. We are not going to use Scott Joplin. <laughs> right. Maple, Maple Leaf Rag will not be in this film. We're <laughs> not going to play around time again. Yeah. I found out that Scott Joplin actually wrote a piece about the Niagara movement. movement. Of oh, course. Please don't make me use it. Please, please don't do anything. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, the music, the, sadly, the music usually comes at the end of the film. That's why I was so excited that the composer this time said, let's talk about it early on right now. Mm -hmm. Let's just have fun with it when we're relaxed rather than the last two weeks and it becomes a big rush. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, music and music is really the fun part. And uh, one thing I really admired my wife for, who was not a musician, is she knew how to edit music just intuitively. Uh, so, you know, the edit, it's really important that the editor understands music. My, uh, editor now, um, Rick Degree, is a musician, 
which is really helpful. He really understands what, what we're doing with, with the music. Um, and you know, a lot of times you got to stitch together the music, even music that's been composed in the film, you take it apart and you get what are called the stems, right? So, you, you know, you have all the pieces of music, but they're recorded separately, separately, and you can move them around. And give me an example. Give, give us an example of what you mean. Well, by let's, you. let's say let's say you have you know the opening melody melody, and then you have a bridge, and you come back to the melody again. Mm -hmm. Let's say you don't want that bridge. Mm -hmm. Or let's say you want the melody to repeat. Let's say the ending. You want the ending to go on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. You can just keep start repeating it and repeating it, right? And you can pull it apart. You can change the instrumentation. You can do all kinds of things with the music. Yeah. So you're not stuck with just the piece you get. And in fact, when you go to some of these music services online now. You can download the stems. You can download all the pieces of the music, all the parts of the music, and not just the, the final recording. Larry, este, we have just seconds left, and I'm going to ask you a big question. Mm -hmm. Give us an example of where music, the soundtrack, just it carried it carried the film for you. Yeah, if you go back to a classic series, uh, Henry Hampton's Eyes on the Prize, about the history of the civil rights movement, you know that the music was crucial to the movement itself. And you had to have that right period music in the film to give you a real feel for the times. So if you just had generic music there, it would fall, it would fall flat. We've been talking with Larry Hart, the amazing Larry Hart. The, Larry, it's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Um, I also understand that you're a stand-up comedian. You're going to be at the open mic. Um, when's that going to be? Uh, that is going to be all of 2023. <laughs> 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 the, the daily Natalia Munoz show from 5 a.m. to 5.04 a.m. Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I'll see you there. Okay. Thank you, Larry.